The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way.
So this morning, I um, want to let you know that there is going to be an offering plate that's passed around later on. That's for the normal offering of the church. But there is also an offering plate on that back table where we're asking those who are here to give above and beyond your normal giving to support Jesse and Jerry V while they're here in the States. That will help them get some flexibility on what they're able to do. Part of their efforts right now is to travel around and make more connections with good, healthy churches here in the U.S. So we're really excited about them being here. Honestly, they are my heroes. Uh, we love them very much. What they're doing is so incredibly valuable to the kingdom of God. They are on the front line of the efforts of expanding the kingdom in a place that for a very long time has been without the gospel. So let's continue to serve them and love them and support them in prayer and also with giving. I'm thankful they'll be here a while, so we're going to learn a lot more about that. Before we get into our sermon this morning, I want to share with you something that I learned early today when I popped open my phone this morning, the first thing that it said was that there were, were different attacks that took place at churches in Sri Lanka this morning. Churches that were gathering around, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I didn't have time to read into the details of the attacks, uh, but from the article that, that just the headline declared, 400 already counted dead. It's a large-scale attack that has taken place against the church of Jesus Christ. But I have something glorious to tell you. Those people who were in Christ, just like Christ was raised, they are now in eternal life. And so I want to share with you just that we have something very easy. It is easy for us to come into this building today. We don't have to suffer or give up much to be here this morning. But to truly follow Christ means to carry your cross daily. It means that you may have to give up your reputation. You may have to give up your own personal desires. In fact, you must to follow after Christ because we follow our leader and he is the one who suffered and bled and died for us. So we will do whatever we must for him. And I am thankful for those people who are willing in places where it's even scary to go to church, where you're afraid of a grenade coming in through the window, that they still continue to worship our risen Savior every single day of their lives. So let's continue to pray for the missions work that's going on around the world. We're thankful for the fact that the kingdom of God is not isolated to a location like this one. And we are thankful most of all because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, which gives us the hope of life. So let's turn now our attention to the word of God. As you're Opening your Bibles now to Acts chapter 2, I want to welcome those who are visiting with us, perhaps for the first time. Thank you for coming. We are so grateful you're here. Whether you know this or not, God is responsible for bringing you here. He was working through that process to get you into the seat that you're in right now so that you might hear the good news that is about to be declared through his word. It's our practice here at the church to preach through a book from beginning to end. It's not our goal to just get through the book, but we desire that the book get through to us. So today we are continuing our study through the book of Acts, and we are going to cover chapter 2, and we're looking at a large portion, the first 41 verses. However, because this is a long text, and due to the many misunderstandings and misapplications of what's in this text in the church today, we're going to find ourselves in this passage longer than normal. So instead of just covering everything in one Sunday, we are going to gather again next time to look again at the same exact text. And this time, we're going to set our attention on the message of the Holy Spirit. And the next time we look at this passage, we'll consider the method of the Holy Spirit. So please follow along now as we begin reading through Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Galatia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own uh, tongues the mighty works of God. <clears throat> and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one, one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about this, the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Join me as I pray that God would reveal himself through the word this morning. O gracious Father, we thank you for your love that you have shown that you would send your own son, your only son to us. We thank you that he lived and that he died to rise to you. O triune God, we truly do give thanks for you have given us new life. You bring dead souls back to life. We desire your reviving work to be made manifest today in this service. Lord, I pray that this morning, For those people who are in the room that don't know Jesus, that you would bring dead souls to life. Bring discouraged souls to the wellspring of joy. Bring those who are chasing sin to repentance. And we pray, Lord, that through your word, you would bring much glory to yourself this morning. As your spirit reveals the great worth and value of your son, Jesus. As your servant today, I plead with you that you would overcome my weaknesses. And that you would make your name be lifted high through this sermon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is absolutely impossible for me to overstate the inestimable value and significance of the arrival of the Holy Spirit in this chapter. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit has now come and he is God within us. So today what we're going to do in this sermon, as I said before, we are not going to look at a lot of the more challenging things this morning, which is the method of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues, the promises of prophesying and all of those sorts of things we will consider, but not this morning. Today, we are going to look at what all of those things were pointing to the message of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to break this sermon down by looking at this very extended text in three ways. We're going to look at first the skeptics, then we will look at the sermon, and finally we'll consider salvation. First, let's look at the skeptics. In our society, skepticism is celebrated. People say that they want proof, they want evidence, they want details. 
one of the interesting things that you'll discover, and I find very amusing actually, is if you begin typing into Google skeptic or skepticism or quotes about skeptics, everything that you will see on the first several pages of Google will be atheists writing against religion as though they have somehow cornered the market on being able to think logically or skeptically about what is taking place. But what we have to understand is that skepticism is not merely an anti-religious notion. All of us should be skeptical of things that, that come up in before our lives. If somebody tells you that something has gone on, you should inspect the details. I think it's important for us to understand that Christianity is not a religion that we just believe for no reason. There is great detail about what has happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if Christ is raised, then everything else that we see in the scripture is true and binding on us as believers. So today we see that there is skepticism in the world. But if you maybe you're a skeptic here today, there is reason to trust what we see here in the scripture. The passage that we're looking at today is amazing for many reasons. But might I suggest one of the most shocking things that comes out of this is the fact that when they first begin to speak here, Jerusalem is filled with all these travelers from all over the Roman Empire. You heard me list all of these different locations everywhere from Rome to Arabia. It is a widespread swath of folks who have gathered together in Jerusalem to hear these words. These people are now in the marketplace, presumably there to purchase food for their families while they're going to be staying there for the holiday, for the festival of Pentecost. Then at some point, around 9 o'clock in the morning, a group of about 120 people exit a house and begin to strike up conversations with anyone who will listen to them about this man named Jesus. But not only are they talking, these ordinary and uneducated men were speaking to people in the language of their own national heritage. This is unusual. This is how we see the people respond in verses 5 through 8. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. These people were confused. What is happening here? And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That's significant because Galileans were known for not learning other languages, for being exclusive to only speaking Aramaic or also maybe Hebrew, but they were not educated by many standards. They did not learn a lot of Greek or Latin or any of the other languages mentioned here. And then they continue and say, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? But the initial response of the crowd was not to instantaneously believe them. You have a couple groups of people. There are two subsets listed here. Some of them are astonished. They are amazed at what is happening. They are blown away by the fact that these men are somehow transcending one of the most difficult barriers in the world, the language barrier. How many people here can say that their first language is not English? We have several, right? That's awesome. I'm so thankful that you're here. The fact that you are hearing what I'm saying right now is amazing because you have worked hard to understand the language that was not the one that you were born into. It is difficult to understand not only the words, but the meaning behind them. What is being declared here? And these people who were travelers to Jerusalem were used to working hard to talk to these people in Aramaic or in Hebrew as they're bartering in the marketplace. And now somebody comes out and speaks in not only a different language, but their heart language. And they are amazed. They're astonished. They were blown away 
by the transcendence of this language barrier, and they're not getting the point. They're hearing the words, but they don't yet understand what these people are saying. We see in verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed, saying, what does this mean? There is genuine interest there. They are drawn to this because of the miraculous nature of what's taking place, but they don't get it. They don't understand. There was a draw to the works of God, but there's not yet a delight in God himself. But there's another group of people listed in this crowd. In fact, their initial stance was to do precisely what most people do when they're presented with information today. Instead of entering into fruitful and reasonable dialogue, there's a group of skeptics who attempt immediately to discredit the apostles' teaching, And they do so in this way in verse 13. But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. Don't listen to them. Nothing to see here. These claims of these apostles are completely able to be dismissed because the messengers are just drunk. They are wasted. No worth listening to them. Peter then stands up and calls on them to stop ignoring the message that they are giving in verses 14 and 15. Peter, it says, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. I think I have, but if I have, it's been rare that I've seen 120 people who are drunk together. Now, other than sports events, perhaps. But I will say, this, what is taking place here, is theoretically possible in our day and age that somebody would stay up all night, a large group of this size, getting drunk together. However, I would argue that even today, this is incredibly rare. But in their culture... And with their limited technology, this is absolutely unheard of. In those days, you go to bed when the sun goes down because to burn an oil lamp was incredibly expensive. There is no electric light. There were no bars open overnight. When you go out and you get drunk, you do so, and then you go to bed when it gets dark. There's 120 people now in the marketplace, and they're like, These guys are wasted. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Nobody in this size of a group is going to be drunk at this point. So Peter explains and dismisses their critique, and then he goes on to disprove it because uneducated, inebriated fishermen do not make eloquent speeches which quote multiple Old Testament texts verbatim and then explain them and show how Christ fulfills them if they are actually wasted. It's at this point that Peter now launches into his own sermon. But before we consider the content of that sermon, I want to address people here in the room directly. Perhaps there are unbelievers who have gathered here with us this morning. It's Easter Sunday. There are many people who only travel to a church or attend a church on this one day of the year. If that's you, thank you for coming here. I am grateful to God that there is still a vestige in our culture of this idea that you should go to church on some time of the year. But I want you to understand that perhaps if you're here and you're skeptical, you're in this room and you're an unbeliever, uh, you, you may fit into one of these two categories. Either you're here and you're interested or you're here and you're skeptical. If you're interested in the things of God, you might not have an understanding yet. That's like a lot of people in this crowd. They're interested in what's being talked about, but they don't get it. They don't understand. Maybe that's you. And if that's you, I am so excited to share with you what Peter says this morning. 
Because the result of what Peter says ends up in 3,000 people trusting in Christ. Today, we don't have 3,000 people. We couldn't fit 3,000 people in this room or many rooms like this one. But listen, if you're here today, just like earlier Jesse said, and you don't know Christ, the Lord and heaven rejoices when even one soul trusts in the Son and returns. So I pray that today would be a day where you hear and not only listen to the words as an interested hearer, but somebody who actually hears with ears given by the Spirit and believes. Or perhaps you're here and you're scoffing at the content that I'm saying right now. You, you, you might think, well, yeah, maybe Jesus was a real guy, but the idea that he rose from the dead, I just can't grasp that. I can't believe that. I can't, I can't make myself think that a person would actually go into the ground, be there for three days, and then rise. If that's you, I have good news for you. I think there were skeptics in this 3,000 number too. 3,000 people went in. I'm certain some of them were those who were scoffing and mocking at Peter saying, that guy's drunk. And then he came out trusting in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So I don't care which category you're in this morning. It doesn't matter. If you're an unbeliever, there is hope that today is your day of salvation. So to close out this first point, allow me to make one quick application for the unsaved folks that are here. I want to ask that you would never dismiss the message because of a faulty messenger. The skeptics were quick to dismiss Peter and the apostles because they viewed them as flawed. Well, guess what? They were flawed. But please understand, every messenger is an imperfect messenger. The Bible is awesome, and it never candy coats the record of its heroes. Where do we learn that Noah got sinfully drunk? The Bible. Where do we learn that Abraham lied about his wife being his sister? Not once, but twice. Where do we learn that Moses murdered a man and that he disobeyed God and was kept out of the promised land because of that? Where do we learn about King David? King David, the the king of Israel, committed major political scandals by committing adultery with one of his best friend's wives and then trying to cover it up by killing one of his best friends. And then he ends up losing his son because of it, having terrible uh, repercussions from that. The Bible doesn't hide the sin or the flaws of these people. They are all sinners. Think about the guy who's preaching the sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter was constantly sinning. This man was not perfect. In fact, it was just 50 days earlier when he lied three times about his association with Jesus. Denied that he even knew the man. So strongly that he cursed at the people who were accusing him of being a disciple of Jesus. I don't know the man. Now it is that same man who is pointing us to the same Jesus in this sermon. He is a flawed messenger. So do not use the excuse that the Christian who shared the gospel with, gospel with you is not perfect in every way. Do not imagine because they are imperfect that you are now exempt from trusting in Christ. The gospel is flawless. The good news is perfect. We are just imperfect messengers sharing it with you. I don't stand here today with any pretense, thinking that I am somehow better than you. I am not. The fact that God saved me is miraculous and stunning and shocking. And every time I think about it, it brings me, it breaks me down because I don't deserve to be here telling you the message. There is no perfect messenger. So if you are here today and you were saying, I don't want to hear it because I know these people are not perfect. I would ask that you please look at the good news of the gospel and look at the one person who was perfect in the scripture. The one person that is always pointed to as being without sin, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Which brings us now to the second point of the sermon, the sermon. Let's talk about sermons for a minute. What is a sermon? 
Sadly, there are many speeches coming from many pulpits around the world today that are masquerading themselves as sermons, but they really don't qualify. In reality, they're nothing more than a TED Talk with some kind of a biblical theme to them. They are designed by nature to be as inoffensive and as inspirational on a human level as possible. We should be modeling our preaching after the sermons that we see recorded for us in the Bible. Let's do what they do. So notice a few specific marks of the sermons that you find in the book of Acts, for example. Let's consider three marks of a true sermon that we find here. First of all, a true sermon will preach to you from the scripture. The sermons in the New Testament either reference directly or they quote previous scripture as the ground of their point. A good sermon is not just a man's opinion that's sprinkled with a few cherry-picked Bible verses in order to bolster his own agenda. A biblical sermon is rooted and grounded in the Word of God. That is why we preach exegetically at this church through a book. We want to make sure we get what it's actually saying. Our church is three years old now, and we spend... We spent so far roughly about two years of that in one book of the Bible, in the book of Mark. I was speaking to a a man whose job is to help churches grow. Uh, We had a discussion. I think he's truly a believer, but some of the things that he said were very unhelpful. And he asked me, this is back when we were finishing up the book of Mark, he asked me how long we'd been doing it. And I explained that we'd been there since we started the church. And he said, oh, that's terrible. That is a terrible idea because you're losing people. People are not going to continue to listen to that. I said, they want to hear the word of God. The people need to hear the word of God. If I'm not feeding them, I'm not doing my job. I didn't say that forcefully. I said it much more nicely. (laughs) When we were getting ready to plant this church, my friend and my mentor, Ed Moore, spoke to me and he said, you need to preach like their souls and their lives depend on it because they really do. I have nothing to say but the word of God. Notice what Peter does in this sermon. He makes an argument about Jesus being the Messiah, but he doesn't just talk. He actually quotes the Bible. In a few minutes, we're going to walk through that argument together, so we'll see exactly how he uses these verses to make his points. But here, we see that he only speaks about 41 verses in this sermon, and only about, I think, 31 of these verses are actually the sermon. And then if you look at it, about half of his text, or half of that text, is quoting another text. Half of what he is saying is pulled directly from the Old Testament. So, a sermon must be from the Scripture. Secondly, a sermon is designed to make an argument. It's not just there to be fluff, or to fill you up. You should be able to hear something where it is demanding something of you. A true sermon is one that is confronting the sinful nature of man and turning your attention to the glorious nature of God. And if it's not doing that, if it's not making that argument, it is not a real sermon. Notice what he does in this sermon. He first tells the people that you must trust in Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah. And let me prove to you that this person really is the Christ, according to the Old Testament. He makes an argument. Third, here's another mark of a true biblical sermon. It is necessarily about the gospel. If it's not about the gospel, it's not a biblical sermon. And I don't just mean that somebody says whatever they want to for 35 minutes and then spend three minutes tacking on a little something extra called the gospel. The gospel must be the motivating factor for what is being preached. And that is what we see taking place here. Notice what he does. 
He accuses these people of the death of Jesus in verse 23. If you were here on Good Friday, you heard a lot about that. Later in verse 38, he tells all of them, you are sinners who must repent in order to be saved. That is not a popular message. It was not then and it is not now. And every person in this room must hear that same truth. And it's something we must hear daily. If you are in Christ, you have not graduated from this. You must preach the gospel to yourself every day. You are a sinner by nature. You are a sinner by choice. And you are by nature an enemy of God. But the good news of the gospel means that Jesus the Messiah can redeem sinners like you and I. That is what true Christian preaching is always designed to proclaim. And Peter is making this plea to the people about exactly how they must be saved. So let's look now at the argument that Peter is making. He starts out by answering the question of how and why these people are all speaking in all these languages. How is it that I'm talking in this language that I've never studied or learned? In verse 16, he grounds their actions in prophetic history this way. He said, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He then proceeds to quote an extended passage from the second chapter of the small book in the Old Testament called Joel. And we're not going to focus much on that this morning because we're going to spend a lot of time there in later sermons. However, I want you to see two quick things. First of all, Peter declares that the spirit that they are now seeing and that is dwelling within them is not exclusive to the apostles. They're not just saying, this is just for us. You can't have any. Rather, what they are declaring is that this is God pouring out the spirit on all flesh. That means all types of people from all over the world. God is going to give this same gift to all who would ever believe. That is part of the message that Paul, Peter is getting at here. Secondly, I want you to notice that Joel's prophecy lands the plane in a very specific way in verse 21 when he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's where the argument of Peter really begins to take shape. He says in verses 22 through 24, this was our text on Friday, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. First off, even if these people had never seen Jesus personally, they had certainly heard about him. Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle for three years. Each person that he healed had a story to tell, and they did tell it. Even sometimes when Jesus said, don't tell people about this. Scholars argue that it was likely that everyone in Israel, every single person who lived there, knew at least one person who was present at the feeding of the 5,000. The Pharisees, who hated Jesus, even admitted and knew that he did miracles. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, for example. You remember that fearful Pharisee who came in the middle of the night? John chapter 3, verse 2, we read that he says, Rabbi, we who is we, meaning all the religious leaders of Israel, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How do they know that? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This conversation takes place at the very early stages of Jesus' ministry, and already everyone is aware, yes, this guy truly is from God because of the miracles. So Peter argues, you remember that guy, the guy who did miracles that all of you were talking about previously? He then goes on to argue that the death of Christ 
was not accidental. Many of you were here two nights ago for Good Friday. Our entire focus that evening was to see how these verses show that God was not surprised by the fact that Jesus was executed. In fact, it was his plan all along. But then the conversation moves into the new realm of new information that the crowds did not yet know and had not yet heard. What happened after the disciples saw Jesus alive? He did not say to them, I want you to go tell everyone about this right now. He said, I want you to go into Jerusalem and I want you to wait. And so they did. And they did not share this information publicly until the Spirit of God came. And under the compulsion and direction of the Spirit, they told everyone that they could that the death of Christ was only the beginning. How does a revolution begin? There's a lot of ways. If you look through history, they're all pretty different. I mean, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Greek War of Independence, the United Irishmen Rebellion. I mean, you go through any of the different rebellions or revolutions that have taken place throughout history, you'll find that there's an incredible difference in all of the way that they initiate. However, I want to ask the question, how does a rebellion or a revolution die? Let me explain something that's, I think, very interesting. This week, I began looking into this question. How does a revolution die? And I looked up a list of roughly 420 different failed revolutions throughout history. And apart from one, I had never heard of any of them. The only one I had ever heard of before was the failed slave rebellion that we know as the rebellion of Spartacus. You guys have probably heard of that. I am Spartacus. No, I am Spartacus. That's the only one that I had ever heard of. And you know what was amazing about that? These were all big deals in their own countries in their own day. And they all all, all ended the same way. Their leader died, and then it was over. Every last one of them, and I looked through extensive amounts of information, they ended because their leader died, either of natural causes, but most likely because he was killed. And when he was killed, everything stops, and the people no longer have a rallying cry or an individual to carry that flag for them. And so now the revolution has failed. That's what the crowds thought of Jesus. Yeah, this was a great guy, but now he's dead. Big deal. Just another failed revolutionary. Just another fake Messiah. It's important for us to understand that now Peter is acting as the herald of a living king. He is acting as the one to carry the message of the true king of the universe and that death could not hold this Messiah down. God raised him up. Death itself was reversed. When Jesus died, the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding region probably thought, oh, big deal, just another pretender to the Messianic throne. But Peter's whole point here is to say that Jesus is alive, therefore he lives to be the Savior. So you must believe. Pay, pay, pay close attention here to how he develops this argument further. Remember, Peter is speaking to Jewish people, Jewish people who knew the Old Testament very well, and they knew the prophecies concerning the Messiah who was to come because they would often debate this. They would talk about, what will it look like when he shows up? How is this going to take shape? So Peter goes right at some of the most well-known messianic prophecies to remind the people of the Old Testament and the fact that it promises that the Messiah would not experience physical decay. So Peter quotes from Psalm 16, which was our Old Testament text that was read earlier so well by Ray. Thank you, Ray. And here's what he says. He quotes it here in verses 25 through 28. For David says concerning him, speaking of Christ, I saw the Lord always before me, 
For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, which by the way, just means the grave or let your Holy one see corruption, which means his body to begin to decompose. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. God had promised that the Messiah's body would not decay. He promised that he would not desert him and leave him there in the grave. So Peter is reminding the people of this Old Testament prophecy, this promise about the Messiah, but the people during that time had not understood the text. In fact, it was one of the hotly debated texts of the Pharisees that we know, we have the records of this still recorded, and you know what they kept arguing is? David's got to be talking about himself, but what does he mean here? So he's going to now, Peter is going to now, argue this is not talking about david he says in verse 29 brothers i may say to you with confidence about the patriarch david that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day in other words hey guys i'm not sure if you are seeing the same thing that i'm seeing here or if you've noticed this but that guy's dead and if you want to check if he's dead his tomb is right over there you just roll away the stone and look and there's his bones enshrined that we are glad to have we're thankful that he was a great king so we have kept this sacred as a nation for so long guess what he's dead that was almost a thousand years ago if you want to check you can find that his body did see corruption So then Peter shifts the argument away from David and he shows how God was speaking through David about Jesus in verse 30. He says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Now, I imagine at this point, Peter is pointing out to the apostles. Remember earlier it said that the apostles stood up with him. I'm assuming he's saying, we are all witnesses. We have seen it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus is the one who tasted death. He did not remain in the grave. He is the one who did not see corruption. He saw death but not decay. He experienced the killing tree, but he was also brought back to life. Peter has built a very airtight biblical argument here that David could not be the one spoken about in Psalm 16. And he makes a very convincing argument that it must be Jesus who is now at the focus of this text. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then pulls out the big guns and he brings out one final argument that proves once and for all that David was speaking about Jesus in the Psalms. He quotes from Psalm 110, which by the way, is the most quoted chapter from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And he says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We have to get our English out of the way a little bit here to dig a little deeper into the original language and understand the logic of Peter's case. The first Lord written here is actually the word Yahweh. Maybe in your Bible you'll see capital L-O-R-D. That's because it's speaking about Yahweh, the great holy name of God. The second word Lord here is L, lowercase O-R-O-R-O-R-D. That second word is Adonai. 
both names of God, but with different connotations. So the literal translation sounds something more like this. Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a conversation from God to God, two members of the Trinity discussing something significant between one another. So Peter is now elevating the argument. He is not only saying that Jesus is the Messiah, he is now declaring that Jesus is actually God himself. So Peter lands the argument in verse 36 by saying, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, which means divine absolute master, and Christ, which means the Messiah, the Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Son of God, the Adonai. He is the one that fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies. So before I move on to the final point, I just want to show you that the resurrection must be part of the proclamation of the gospel. It is not an anomaly or unusual that Peter would use this as a focal point of what he is teaching about Christ. The most boiled down version of the gospel that we ever find in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 4. Notice that even at its most basic, the gospel must include the resurrection of Jesus. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the most basic of gospel presentations you will ever find. And you cannot make it more simple than that. At this point, it is at a point of irreducible complexity. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 says it this way. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ had not been raised, there's no point. You have no business being here this morning. Just go find some Easter eggs. There's nothing of significance here. But everything in the Christian faith stands or falls on this one point. Was Christ raised from the dead? I could go on with text after text after text to show you that the resurrection of Christ is the foundational doctrine here. In fact, every time it speaks to us about Christian living, it grounds it in the fact that he died for us, so now we have been crucified with Christ, and it is in Christ now that I live. What does that mean? That he was raised, and now with him I am raised. There is a resurrection aspect of our Christian life, and there is no following Jesus without trusting in this resurrection. I could go on and on, but I think you get my point. I read somewhere a few years ago that there was a survey done in the early 1900s. I don't remember the exact year. I tried to find this. I couldn't find it. But they asked a number of people, a large number, who were a mix of Christians and non-Christians. And they asked them the question, a lot of religious questions, but one of them they asked was, what is the fundamental belief of the Christian? And the number one answer that they were given in that early 1900 survey was, Christians believe in the Trinity. The number two most common answer was, they believe in the resurrection. Interestingly enough, they redid the same survey recently, I think about five years ago. That's when I read this, this whole study. And the number one response given to the question, what is the belief of a Christian, was that they would vote Republican. That's a sad statement that that would be the identity of a believer rather than the fact that they believe in the Trinity 
or that they believe in the resurrection, which had such low numbers in the recording, they were not even listed on the report that I read. It's significant that we must say that Christ raised. I think the answers to that that survey I'm telling you about probably came down to a general ignorance of what believers actually believe. But I also think it might have something to do with the fact that we as Christians have de-emphasized the resurrection to a dangerous extent in our Christian experience. But for the Christian, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. He is risen every day. Every single day of your life is a day that Jesus is still alive, still ruling, and still reigning, never to taste death again, but always to be our king forever. But you may be here thinking, so what? Big deal. What's the point? What does this mean for me? Which brings us now to our final point this morning, salvation. Follow along with me one last time as I read verses 37 through 41. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Many understood what Peter was saying. They understood the weight of their own sin. If Jesus is indeed risen, it means that you are responsible to honor him and follow him. And the people there were devastated because they knew they were not worthy to be counted among his people. So they asked, what must I do? I've got to do something. Maybe you're here as an unbeliever and you're asking that question yourself. You're cut to the heart. You're saying, what must I do? I've got to do something. The good good thing is, there's nothing you can do because it's already been done. You are incapable, but the one who could save you has done everything necessary for you to be saved. He has died on that cross. So what must you do? You just must believe that he has died for you and that your sins are covered and you can be redeemed. As the prophet Joel said earlier in the passage, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Or as Peter says here at the end of the passage, you must repent, which means to turn away from your sin and turn to Christ and begin living a life which follows him. It's free but it may cost you everything. As I mentioned earlier, it is the Christian's responsibility to pick up your cross and carry him, carry it. What I'm telling you right now is this. There's no such thing as cheap grace. It costs the Savior his life. He truly died on that tree. He truly bore the sins of his people, and he was truly crushed by the wrath of the Father, and he experienced in his body the physical punishment of the human, uh, the, the human people who put him there. But he he rose, and he rose showing us that he now lives to be our king. And as we follow him, we are also going to experience the suffering of Christ, as it says in Colossians, that we are going to fill up the, the sufferings of Christ. And so your suffering will look different than his. I have confidence that you're not going to be nailed to a cross But if you are in Christ, if you trust Christ, if you're in this room as a believer, I want you to live like he is truly your king every day, which means saying yes to him and no to self every time. What a delight it would be if this Resurrection Sunday would be the day that the Lord saved a soul. If you want to know more about Christ, if you want to talk to a pastor, we're here for you, we love you, we want to share the gospel with you. 
it would be a delight for us to be able to share what God has done. And if you are in Christ, I want to encourage you to soak in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Don't move past it. That is always at the center of what we must trust about our Savior, that he died and that he rose for us. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that your love is displayed for us in that you sent your son to die and that you saved us by raising him for our justification. God, I pray that today if there is anyone here who is currently in rebellion, that is currently a skeptic, that is currently refusing to hear your word, God, I pray that you would break down those barriers by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray if anyone is here that is interested, they are hearing, but yet they don't understand, God, I pray that you would give them the ability by your Spirit to know who Christ truly is and they might believe. God, I ask that today as a church we would be encouraged. that This would not just be a uh, a a once-a-year celebration of the resurrection, but they would be encouraged to live daily in light of the fact that our Savior is alive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.